finish this series today called Seek, and our whole heart's desire and our action steps this month have been, we as a church, we're going to seek God. As you know, today we finished our 21 days of prayer and fasting. I can't wait to see the, the return that comes from that. But my encouragement to you today is no matter where you find yourself sitting in this room, I believe that God put you here on purpose. I don't think it's an accident that you're here today. I believe that, that God formed you. He knew you. He knew where you would be today, and he wants you to hear this message not because it's mine, but because it comes from the Holy Spirit and it comes from Holy Scripture. Are you with me? You may be in this room and you say, well, uh, I mean, you may be in here feeling like a winner and you're like, this sermon is for winners. You may be in here and you say, oh, but I feel like a loser. This sermon is for losers if you feel like a loser today. You may say, well, I feel too old to, to think about how God wants to use me. No, it's for the old people, the young people, the all people. Are you with me? God's got a word that he wants to share. And, and I don't say that as like a cheerleader, like God's got a word for you today. I say it as like, if we apply ourselves to this, this is for you. Amen. And so we're going to wrap up our seek series. And I want to give you this statement, write it down. I hope you take notes. I hope that you're writing things down. Did you know that when you take notes, whether it be in your phone or on a piece of paper, do you know that when you take a note just one time, you hear something and you write it down, you're four times more likely to remember that. So you're already here. You're already hearing it. Why don't you just make it stick with a four times greater chance? Are you with me? And so write this down. Write this down. It's, uh, I, I wrote it down like this. It is your decisions, not your desires, that determine your destiny. I want to talk about action this morning. I want to talk about how we, we need to take practical steps to, to build things and to see God's fruit grow in our lives. And people come to me all the time and they say, oh, well, my heart is in it, in my heart, in my heart. And they're always sharing about what's in their heart and what's in their heart. But we're called to a life of action. Amen. No, come on, with me. Amen. Who's with me? We're, we're called to take steps. we got to live this thing out. And so people say, oh, my heart, my heart, my heart. But your heart, that's great that it lives there, but it should lead you to a place of, of building and action and steps. Uh, it's like that commercial that says, just okay is not okay. Right? You've seen the commercial. The doctor's like, oh, I feel okay about it. Well, just okay is not okay. And so when God looks back on our life and, and he's like, what have you done with the life that I've given you? And, and our response back is just like, well, you know, my heart, I had a lot of things in my heart. In my heart is not okay, right? Yeah. We, we got to get to a point where we're building and advancing the kingdom. That's why the book of James says, without works, faith is dead. F faith without works. If we don't do something with it, if we don't put it into action, our faith is dead. That's why 1 John says, let us not love with words or speech but with actions in truth. It doesn't do you any good to come in here and say, amen, and that's truth, and no scripture, and have all the understanding, and be able to say all the right things. It does you no good to have all of the, the word and understand if we're not at some point putting it into practical action. We're living it out. Are you with me? And so it is your decisions, not your desires, that determine your destiny. We make all kinds of decisions. We make good decisions. We make bad decisions. I'm thankful that God's expectation of us is not perfection. Can I get an amen? But we make good choices. We make bad choices. In 2007, I made a choice here in Holland. In 2007, September of 2007, uh, I made a decision in my life, which became a part of my destiny. I got married to my wife. Isn't that a good decision? You know, right? Like I made it. So here's what I would say. Uh, on that day, 
my wife is not here, and I said this in first service, so you all are going to be like, I can't believe he's saying that with her not here. Um, I said it in first service. You guys know me. I don't care. So on this day in September 2007, my wife made a great decision, didn't she? <laughs> she made a great decision. And, uh, and so we, we got married. That was a great decision that we got married. Another thing I've done in my life, in, uh, when I was 19 years old, I went into the full-time ministry. Go ahead and put that up there. Uh, this is my first full-time ministry church photo. <laughs> yeah, okay. Applause. Look at, look at. You see no gray hair, a pretty good hairline. Uh, I look young. I look put together. I went into full-time ministry and children and youth and all this stuff, and I went to full-time ministry. And then several years later, maybe 15 years later, uh, I thought it was a good decision uh, to start my own church, to launch my own church, to be uh, a, a pastor of my own work. And, and here's what that looks like. There we are. <laughs> so, so we make good choices and bad choices. That is a morning in my house right there. And when I say morning, it's the morning as in a.m. And that's also what I mourn when I see where I've... So we make good choices and bad choices. They all have results. Amen. Just kidding. I love you. I love this church and I love my hair. What's left of it and what color it is. All right. It is your decisions, not your desires that determine your destiny. I would also take it one step further and say this. It is your decisions, not your conditions that determine your destiny. It's your decisions, not your conditions that determine your destiny. The Bible is full of a whole bunch of jacked up conditions that God still used and brought forth great destiny in people, didn't he? We know so many people that they've come from this type of lifestyle, and this was the background, and this was their parents, and all the odds were stacked against them. But because they still made good choices, and they still put God first, or they still, and God did great things in their life. But then we also know people who, because of their conditions, allowed a victim mentality to come in, and they made excuses, and they made bad choices, and they blamed other people, and the destiny result was not good for them there. Aren't you with me? And so it's even more than just our conditions. It's even more than our circumstances. It's our decisions that we make. So the first miracle we're going to take a look at, we're going to take a look at the first miracle that Jesus did. And there's a message that comes from the first miracle. When Jesus decides, hey, this is the first miracle I'm going to do for all to see and for all to speak of for all of eternity, he's sending a big message. He's making a big statement. And there's a truth that we see that comes from it. John chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. It says, on the third day when a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Um, this is a big deal wedding. Jesus, his mom, and the disciples are all at this wedding. So I'm letting you know, the scene that is set here is a big deal scene. So when Jesus does a miracle, it's not just like this little favor thing that he tried to do. He knew in its setting the power and the result of what this message of this miracle would do. Uh, some people believe, scholars believe, it may have actually been John who wrote the book of John. It may have been John's wedding, uh, but, but there's some debate about that. But the scripture says it was on the third day. Now, here's the thing. Weddings back then lasted for seven days. Seven days. This was the third day of a seven-day wedding. Some of you dudes, when you get invited to a wedding during football season, you need to be thankful it's only an hour and not seven days. Are you with me? And so seven days and the third day, and in verse 3, this is where, this is where it all starts to, starts to happen. Verse 3, it says this. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So the demand for a miracle has just been presented. Some of you, 
go to your refrigerator or your closet, and when you're out of wine, you say, oh, Lord, we need a miracle. (laughs) I'm out of wine in this house. None of you, because you're good Christians. But for them, this would have been shameful. This would have been embarrassing. By day three of a seven-day process, for them to be out of wine, it meant one of two things. It meant uh, either they didn't prepare, and that was embarrassing and shameful, that by day three, their planning was so poor they were out of wine, or uh, for them, it would mean their close-knit family, the people who they considered dear, uh, had turned out to be over-drinkers, if you understand what I'm saying. So either way for them, this is a bad scenario. And then this is the only time we pick up the scripture. This is the only time in scripture that you are not supposed to be Christ-like. We see what Jesus does here in verse 4. He says, woman, it's the only time in scripture you shouldn't do what Jesus does. (laughs) Say to a woman, woman. So he says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I believe like mother's instinct might have been kicking in here because you know how moms just know. I feel like she probably knew Jesus was going to get ready to do something supernatural because she says, hey, you know, my hour is not yet come. And then her response is to the servants, listen, whatever he tells you to do, do it, which is actually the point of this miracle. The point of the miracle is not that he's a wine supplier. The point of the miracle is not that he's magical enough to turn water into wine. The point of this first miracle is that if you're somebody who's willing to do whatever Jesus tells you to do, the supernatural will show up in your life. Are you with me? And so the verse goes on, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Uh, Other translation says, so this one says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And other ones say, whatever command, whatever. And basically the instruction that he gives, you follow out. Verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize who it had come from. Either the servants knew that it had been drawn water. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the water, the good wine, right? Everyone who brings out the choice first, sorry, the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after, and the guest had too much to drink, but you had saved the best till now, verse 11. When Jesus did hear, what Jesus did here in Cana, Galilee, was the first of signs, which he received, revealed his glory, and the disciples believed him. Here's the point I'm trying to make. When he did this miracle, he did it by sending a message. If you, if you follow me, if you do what I tell you, if you're completely obedient to my call, the miraculous will happen, and in turn, people will believe. It says that the disciples then believed. They saw the act of God, the move of God. They were wholly obedient to it, and then it, it brought forth believing. I'll say it to you like this. Jesus' first miracle says, whatever he calls you to do, do it. Whatever he calls you to do, do it. There were six pots that held 20 or 30 gallons apiece, equaling 180 gallons of water. And Jesus assigns them to go and fill these. Now, here's what's interesting about this story. Hang with me for just a second. Here's what's interesting about this story. Do you know that there was probably water in the room? I can't imagine. Now, now this, was a wine, this was a wedding that ran out of wine. 
but I can't imagine that there was no other water in another place. I can't believe the only thing they were offering was wine, right? So these guys, Jesus is saying, hey, go fill these massive barrels, if you will, because they're more like barrels than they were pots. Go fill these barrels with water. And they're going, isn't there already water here? Why are we getting more water? And I would tell it to you like this. When Jesus calls you to do something, oftentimes it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem reasonable. It doesn't feel practical. And most of the time it's uncomfortable. Are you with me? These servants are being called to execute this thing that makes no sense. There's no logic. It don't make sense. It doesn't add up. For you in your life this year, I believe as we're being wholly obedient to seeking God, I believe when God tells you to go, there's going to be times where you go, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem logical. How would this even happen? When God tells you to give, when God tells you to go talk to somebody and minister to somebody, when God tells you to start that business, when God tells you to step away from that person, are you with me? Do that uncomfortable thing to put up a boundary or to set a standard or to no longer participate the way you used to participate because now you have a standard. Are you with me? It's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be hard to make sense. But just like these servants, whatever he tells you to do, what do we do? We do it. Are you with me? I'm sure they were, and of course they were servants, but I'm sure they were some sort of like put together attire. How many know carrying these huge pots with that much water, uh, these big barrels, if you will? How many know these guys weren't like in their car hearts? They were servants at a very extravagant wedding. So they're going, we're not prepared for this. We don't have what we need for this. And how many know they didn't go out to a hose? They went out and they fetched from a well all of these gallons of water. It didn't make sense. How often does obedience to God not make sense? Think about Noah. God says, hey, I'm going to need you to build a boat you've never built a boat. I need you because rain's coming. I've never seen rain before. And he's just out there grinding because whatever God calls us to do, no matter how ridiculous that looks, I'm still going to do it. Are you with me today? So you see Noah, Daniel, Moses, literally Moses is like, I'm going to go deliver my people because I'm pretty sure God spoke to me through a plant. What? Right? You're marching in there, Pharaoh, let my people go because a plant told me, and I think that plant was God. What? right? It's just insanity. If you keep looking into scripture, Ezekiel, this was a command of God when we're trying to make sense of everything. This is one of the things that God told Ezekiel to do. Sleep on your left side for 390 days. It was actually more than that, but he slept on his left side obediently to God for 390 days. What? (laughs) Did I hear that right? You know, you're just like praying and God's like, what I need you to do. Think about even Peter. They needed to pay their taxes. So he goes to Jesus and he's like, hey, got to pay my taxes here. We got this thing going on. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, we need to do that. That's a good thing. What I need you to do is go get your fishing pole, go down to the lake. You're going to catch a fish and in its mouth is going to be a coin that we're going to use to pay the taxes. What? (laughs) Because obedience looks ridiculous and unreasonable and complicated. I mean, think about that for Peter. How annoying is that? He knows Jesus is the miracle worker. And he's like, well, I guess I need to be obedient. He goes and gets a pole and he goes down to the thing and he catches a fish and surely what's in its mouth, what he needs. Because here's the truth. Obedience is the precursor to the miracle. God literally could have just, what's behind my ear? I got the, right? He could have. He could have done the same thing at the wedding. Everybody watch this. Wine, Right? No, what was he doing? He was testing our obedience. He's testing to see, are you willing to follow me? Whatever I say, do, are you going to do it? That's the call of the first miracle. 
So point number one is this, to be able to be somebody who follows God into the miraculous and do all that he's called us to do. One thing we need to do, which is point number one, one of the decisions we make to walk in the destiny we're called to walk in is point number one is this, you need to get close to God. We need to be people who are close to God. Now, I don't know if you uh, have any people uh, that are space invader people in your life. They are just way too close to you. Uh, I'm talking stage five clinger. Like you can't do anything. Like they're, they're, they're golden retrievers, but they're humans. They just follow you around the house. I'm actually married to one of those. And again, I said this in first service. Here's how I am. I love hang out. It's my love language. I love to hang out and be, but like if we're in the same room, we're close. Like I feel good. We're in the same room, but I feel close. My wife, like if they made a jumpsuit that you could both wear together, <laughs> number one, she would want that. And number two, she would not even feel weird about it for a minute. She would be like, you're weird. This is normal. This is how we were meant to live, right? The other thing that's weird about it is she's created that in all of my children. <laughs> and so if you were to see us in public at a restaurant, uh, here's probably what you would see. I would be in the booth and I would have literally every single one of the children on my side of the booth. And I would have to be okay with that because if I didn't, they would be screaming and crying. Or if you came to the restaurant, you would notice I would be with one of the kids. And on the other side would be the other kids crying because they didn't get to sit with me because she just made more stage five clingers. Or at a restaurant, I would be in the booth with all of the children and Jess would be on the other side of the booth crying because she couldn't sit with me. It's bad at our house that way. And, uh, and here's the truth about God. He's a stage five clinger. He wants to be really close to you. Like my wife, like, like, when, like when we sit next to each other, like she doesn't like just come and sit down. She like arrives right at my, that's how God is. His desire is to just be so close to you. Like, like it, it's a good scripture, but, it, but, but it's, it's pretty creepy uh, when you think about it. Uh, it's like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But you could almost say it like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Like I'm always there, you know, and, and you got to be careful. Uh, and, and so, but God is stage five clinger. He wants to be so near you always. And so for us to be obedient to God, we have to put our lives in situations where we're near God, where we're close to God. I thought about it like this. I'll, I'll have help. Everybody, everybody give it up over here at Justin Peasley. Give it up as he comes up. Peasley Chiropractic Care. If these guys aren't snapping your back, you're doing it wrong. But Peasley Chiropractic Care here in Holland, look him up. And, um, and so he's going to be God obviously, right, Lauren? I mean, obviously, it's a pretty easy, pretty easy thing to, to make here. But so he's going to be God in this situation, and I am not, right? Amen. And, um, and so he's God. And here's what happens to us in our life. God calls us to closeness with him. God calls us to, God has called us to obediently follow him. Whatever he tells us to do, I'm going to do. And so we're looking at where we want to get with God. I got to get all the way over to there. Maybe this year I want to I give consistently and I want to put God first in my resources, but that looks like such a big step. How am I ever going to make it to that? 
Or we say, man, maybe this year I want to just in worship. I want to worship him like never before. Maybe maybe for you, raise your hand and worship for the first time. And you, your heart is desirous to do that, but that step looks so big. Maybe for you, it's serving. I just... I don't feel qualified enough to serve in church, but it's my desire to make a difference in my community, and so I want to serve, but that step looks so big. But here's the thing about the closeness of God. The scripture promises us in James chapter 4 that when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. Whenever you look at how far you have to go with God, that's actually not accurate because anytime we take a step, what does God do? He closes the gap. He draws near to us. So every time we say, oh, I got that far to go. Well, not really, because every step you take, he's stepping toward you. When we draw near, he draws near to us. Are you with me? Give it up for Justin one more time. Every time you look at the reason why you can't, oh, I got that far to go. No, you don't. Because God steps in and he draws near. You say, well, I've taken a step toward God and I've fallen. That's okay. The scripture says that the qualification of the righteous is that they just get back up. Though the righteous may fall, but they get back up time and time and time again. And guess what? You're not dead. You may have taken a step and fallen short, but God didn't let you die, did he? He You still got the opportunity to get back up and take another step. So we draw near to God. We get close to God. That's one of the ways we follow him obediently. One of my counselors gives me this illustration about the tipping point. We say, oh, I got so far to go. I got so much progress to make. No, you don't. You just got to make one decision after another. And you make another decision, you stack another decision, you stack another decision. He said it's like spilled water. Okay, you ever spill water on a table or a countertop or something? And that water falls, and it's going really slow to the edge of the tipping point, if you will. It's going so slow. It's got no momentum, and it feels like it's never going to get there. But when it finally gets to a tipping point and goes over the edge, how many know the water that's still left on the table all of a sudden from an accelerated pace makes its way, doesn't it? It makes its way. It's the same thing in our decisions. We say, God, I'm moving from just having a heart for it, that I'm going to start taking action steps toward it. And it's going to, it's going to take a while. And it's going to take a minute to build. But when it finally gets there, it's going to have momentum. Are you with me? We just keep stacking decisions. People say, oh, I can't get close to God. I just don't have time. I just, I can't press in. I can't arrange my schedule to get near. I'm so busy. That is ridiculous. Because if we look at our lives and the way and the things that we seek, you know what everybody in your neighborhood's doing. You know what your brother's doing, your sister's doing, what kind of vacations they're taking, the cars that are driving. Oh, you know the way they're raising their kids. You know everything about everything that means nothing. That's a good spot. Say amen. Oh, I just don't have time. I can't seek God. I just can't have him in my life. You got all of this useless information. You know what's up with grays. You know what's up with the million little things. Am I getting too truthful? You sports guys know all the records of all the finals. I'm in that group. You guys got all the stats. You got all this kind of stuff. You can tell me all this stuff of all that's going on and all the things that you've sought. But when I say, hey, what's God doing in your life? What's he up to? What's he's been speaking to you? Well, you know, our church is doing a series the pastor's been preaching on. No, I asked what God's doing in your life. Oh, well, nine months ago at women's study, the theme was this thing. No, what's God saying to you today? Like, what has he spoke to you? What words, what, what scriptures, what things are happening in your life? How are you close to God in your life? I just don't have time. I don't have a da, da, da. Are you with me? If we want it, it's possible. We need to start stacking the decisions to get to the tipping points of momentum to be close to God. Are you with me? That's why we fasted. That's why we pray. 
Maybe you need to get a journal and you start journaling these prayers and putting these information. That's why you need to get a worship playlist and start putting those things in your life. Why? Because it's stacked decisions to create momentum toward God. Number two is after we've sought him, after we've gotten close to him, what we need to do is expect direction from him. Jesus' mom, Mary says, hey, listen, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Do you know the posture that the servants had at that point? They were then expecting direction from God. Isn't it a shame that so often we just pray to pray and we just worship to worship and we just do our devotion to do devotion? We go through all of that time just to check it off a list to feel better about ourselves instead of using those environments and those atmospheres to draw an expectation or to inspect, expect direction from God. I'm worshiping right now. I got this playlist on because I am expecting direction to come from God to me in this moment. I'm sitting in this service right now, not because I go to church and I'm a Christian. No, I'm sitting in this service right now because I'm expecting God to give me some direction for my week. I understand what I'm saying. Expecting direction. I'd say it to you like this. God always meets your level of expectancy. He always meets the level of your expectancy. When I was a youth pastor, we'd get all the parent, you know, you get, get a mad parent. So they, I need a meeting with you, pastor. And they would come in and sit down and they would say, your program stinks and you're not teaching the kids anything and my kid's not growing. And I was like, oh, okay, uh-huh. Yeah, your kid's on his phone the whole time. Your kid's messing around with his girlfriend in service the whole time. It's no wonder your kid's getting nothing out of it because your kid has no expectation level in this. Are you with me? A church cannot fix what a household neglects. And so don't send me your kids to fix when you don't care about it in your home. Oh, I just want my kids to be raised by God. Show them. Show them in your home how you want them to be raised. Anyway, that's not even in my notes. But <laughs> So we love to say, and, and, then, and then, oh, pastor, we just love what you're doing with the youth. We just love it. Our kids, we've seen them grow so much, and we're so proud as teenagers that they're pursuing God. Guess what those kids are? Those are the kids sitting forward, taking notes. Those are the kids that are serving in youth group. Those are the kids that are going on mission trips. Why? Because their expectancy from God to give them direction is high. They're expecting to receive. And as much as I'd love to blame it on youth, I get the same thing as adults. Pastor and my husband, he just gets nothing out of church. And that don't surprise me. He's on his phone the whole time I'm preaching. Other people sit in the same service and hear the same servant and they're emailing me, Pastor, oh, I got so much out of your word. I got so much out of the worship. I got, and guess what? They're the lean forward, taking notes, paying attention, expecting God to give them direction. Are you with me? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. And then do it with an expectation that God's going to give you a direction. You can hear from God. You can receive from God. I've never heard God's audible voice. That's not the only way you hear God. The book of Isaiah chapter 30 does say this, that with my own ears, I heard God. And it talks about how he's leading me to go left and to go right and how God speaks. But I'll say it to you like this. God's voice is louder than audible. It's not necessarily a hearing things. You've been in moments where you know that you know God is speaking to you. It's louder than audible. You say, well, I can't always hear his voice. Well, then read his voice. Get out your Bible and start reading with an expectation that God's going to give you a direction. Are you with me? You read his voice. Speak his voice. Start saying scripture. Start saying the promises over your life that God has for you with an expectation that God will give you direction. Why do you think we worship? 
Why do you think songs are made in church? It's so that we can sing the decrees of how God cares about us. We sing of his faithfulness. We sing of his ability to move mountains. Why? Because it sets expectations in our hearts and in our lives, and then God can lead us with direction. Am I making sense today? My last point is this, point number three. We must obey immediately and obey fully. We must obey immediately and we must obey fully. I think so many of us love to obey when it's convenient. Oh, God's just leading me and it's so great and it's so wonderful. But then when it gets complicated, like six pots, 30 gallons, you weren't prepared to do it that night and you had to go get all that stuff, all that kind of work. Then all of a sudden you want to kind of change the obedience, don't you? It's easy to come here and say hi and love God. But when God's calling you to love on your neighbor, your coworker, who's complicated, you still need to obey and fully obey. Amen. So they're over here just they're drawing buckets and putting them in these barrels, if you will. You know, it says pots, but they're more barrel size. They're drawing buckets and putting them in these barrels. And I just imagine while they're doing that, they're probably thinking and talking the same way we do. Who is this Jesus guy anyway? Is he even really that big of a deal? I don't even think he's that great of a leader. Like, I mean, who is this guy, Jesus? Is he that great of a leader? I mean, he, he like, he's supposed to be Messiah, and he like didn't even start his ministry until he's in his 30s. Has he, even, has he even done a miracle yet? I mean, in his 30s, Fertick was like the largest church in America already, his 30s. Who's Jesus, right? We start comparing all, all of these things. Look at his followers. I mean, look at the people who follow him. They're ridiculous. Tax collector. I mean, what are we doing? And so they start mumbling and complaining and grumbling because we do the same thing. We're called to obedience and we start dissecting all the ways that, oh, we shouldn't be doing this. And here's my out on this. Amen. They're probably thinking, man, this this wedding is going on and I'm there and now I'm missing it. Everybody else is enjoying it. They're drawing buckets and like, wait, is that that the cha-cha slide? Are they doing the, I'm missing the cha-cha. It's my favorite thing. Now I'm out here And it happens in our life. God calls you to whole and total obedience, okay? And everybody else in the world is having fun. You're over here being obedient. You're drawing buckets. You're just doing your best. And you're over there like, wait wait a minute. They just got blessed. Wait, they got that promotion? Well, that's not fair. They're doing that. Are you with me? You're just over here drawing buckets, being obedient. And you start calculating all the things that you think that you're missing. But we got to be obedient. The world starts to say to you, now, wait a minute. Help me understand this. Like every Sunday you get up, and go to church, and bring your kids to church, wait a minute, like, you give your money to a church, like, it's ridiculous, that doesn't, whole obedience isn't going to make sense to what everybody else is doing on the other side, amen, I'll, uh, I'll close with this, James chapter 1 verse 22 sums this up really well, it says this, it says, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says, It's insane for us to come into these places and be in these environments and be around the word and hear the word and hear the worship music and stay the same. Have all our old crutches, keep all our old excuses, do all of our things and stay the same. If you're hearing it and it's nudging you and it's prompting you and you're saying amen to it, then let it cause you to move out into something. Take action. Are you with me? Uh, I heard this crazy story and by no change, but by no way at all am I saying like, this is a good idea. I'm not putting it out here because I, because I think that somebody should, should use this as an example. Um, but I heard a story this week on a podcast of a couple who couldn't have kids. They were told, look, 
you can't get pregnant, you'll never get pregnant, it's not possible for you. They've done all the tests, they've done all the things. And the story goes that, I can't remember, they were either at like a conference or a prayer and fasting gathering or they were at some type of worship experience and one of the spouses uh, heard the Lord tell them to prepare a nursery. To take the practical steps in their life to paint the walls, to get the crib, so I'm saying there came a day where they were drawing the pots. They were, they were filling the buckets. God literally was like, hey, I need, I need you to. So there was a day where they're going to Bed Bath or Bye Bye Baby. They're going to the things and they're buying. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? What you... And they're painting. Well. And it took two years before they ever conceived and got pregnant. So for two years, people would come over to their house and say, I didn't know you were expecting. I... When's the due date? We're not sure. We just got a promise from God. He said that we would, so we've taken steps. Are you with me? We're obeying wholly and fully what God told us to do. We're, we're not just letting it be words, but instead we're following him into action. Painted, curtains, are you with me? I thought about our, our launch meetings before this church were just so ridiculous for me. I'm a planner, I'm a preparer. I like to execute my sermons in like a really strategical way. And so when I would, we'd have these launch meetings before we knew where we were gonna be and what space we had and the money we had to work with and who would be worship leaders and all these different things. And so we'd have these meetings where people would come, 50 people would come and they would expect an update from me on the launch of the church. So I would get up here and I'd say like, well, we don't know where we're gonna meet. We don't have any money and we don't have anybody to do anything, um, but we're still launching January 12. God told us we're gonna do, we, we came together as faith people and we were what? Drawing pots. We were filling up, are you with me? And I'm just saying that there's seasons of your life where it's not gonna make sense. You can't calculate it. You're not gonna sure how it's gonna, but you just keep fully and wholly and immediately obeying God. Are you with me? There's this story of Smith Wigglesworth and uh, he's a great revivalist. And he held these revivals in town for like three days. And he would, of course, stay at a hotel while he was in town. And so he's getting ready to go to his revival. And he hears God tell him to go up to room 573. So go up to fifth floor, room 73. Go to that room and tell the person in that room that God loves them, has a plan for them, that Jesus loves them. And so Smith Wiggles was like, no way. I'm a revivalist in town. These crusades are going to be full. I'm going to go up there and just and just say this to this random room. And so I kind of like the honesty of Smith Wigglesworth here. He says that he went up to the door and all he did was shout into the keyhole of the door. That's that's like a paper under the door kind of move. You know, that's what I would have done. But the, the story goes that he shouted into the door, into the keyhole, John 3, 16, for God so loves the world, he gave his only begotten son. And so he shouts John 3, 16 in there, and he says he took off out of there, right? Kind of the, the weirdest ding-dong ditchit, if you will, right? Like just, he shouts it and runs out of there, has the revival service. The next night, he's back doing the revival, and he says hey, let's start the night with testimonies from the night before. Is there anybody here that, that God moved on their life or changed? And a guy stands up on his chair and he says, I do. He says, I wasn't at your revival. He says, but I was in room 573 putting together a noose to hang myself. And some crazy idiot shouted into my keyhole that Jesus loves you in John 3, 16 and gave his life to, and followed God ever since. It's insane but it's following God wholly and immediately and obediently. We say it like this, before we can experience the miraculous, we walk in the ridiculous. Isn't that how God works sometimes? Before the impossible, there's usually the impractical. 
And so we're like, how is this gonna work? This doesn't make any sense, but God, I know you're calling me to do this. Whatever God tells us to do, we do it, amen. That's the story of the first miracle. So I don't know what that looks like for you as you see God this year, but just remember these things, be close to God. What, what he's calling us to do, we do it, amen. Bow your heads, close your eyes. I'll pray for you before we take off. God, we love you so much. We're so grateful for the way that you love us, the way that you lead us, the way that you're building our lives. God, we don't want self-help and self-care talks. God, we want your word to be something that molds us into who you called us to be, that allows us the ability to just take up our cross and follow you the way that you've called us to. Lord, I pray that, that all of these words are hidden in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Lord, I thank you that your Holy Spirit empowers us to live the way that you've called us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.